Welcome to Medspectives, the podcast about healthcare professionals, the stories of their practice, and the diverse perspectives into the world around us. I'm your host, Arvind Rajan, and today we're joined by Dr. Carling Matejka, a veterinarian in Canada. I want Medspectives to really capture all facets of medicine, and veterinary medicine is something that I really knew nothing about before I talked to Dr. Carling. While in human medicine, you just need to focus on humans, for veterinary medicine, you need to be able to understand all kinds of different animals, from dogs to cows to snakes to tarantulas. And while there are some similarities between them, there are also a good number of differences. Dr. Carling discusses her experience from treating dogs in her clinic to treating cows out on the farm. We also talk about the concept of euthanasia and draw parallels in human medicine to physician-assisted suicide, and Dr. Carling shares some interesting stories from her time in practice. All in all, I'm excited as Medspectives becomes more and more diverse in the health professionals that we cover, like, you know, this awesome one with Dr. Carling, and I hope you enjoy. Glad to have you here, Dr. Carling. How are you doing today? I'm doing very good, thank you. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm excited to talk to you because, you know, we've never had a, a veterinarian on, on the podcast. You know, it's very been, it's been very focused on human medicine and, and things focused on that. But um, I wanted to reach out to you because you just have so many diverse experiences. And I was like scrolling through your Instagram and it's just so crazy to see that. Um, what, what is it about veterinary medicine that really, you know, gravitates you towards it? Uh, I think there's a, a variety of different reasons why I wanted to go into veterinary medicine, but I think the thing that has kept me the longest interested in it is the variety. Uh, I mean, my mornings can consist of doing surgery on dogs and cats and my afternoons can be doing medical appointments and blood work on cows. So it's just very variable. And what I get to do, it's very rare that every day is the same. Um, so that's, that's definitely what makes me love the profession right and how do you I guess how, how does that training work because you know in in like traditional like human medicine which like I'm much more familiar with um you specialize in like a particular thing and you don't tend to do like a wide variety but how does how does it different like for veterinary school and how do you get like ready to do that large amount of variety yeah so um your training for vet school is very similar to med school. So I went and did my prerequisites in my undergrad, and then I was accepted into vet school and then did a four-year program there. Now we come out after that four years of having, or just being like a general practitioner. So mm. um, kind of a, a, a jack of all trades and a master right. of none. Uh, then you can, so then you can do what I do where I do mixed practice or you can do regular small animal practice or cattle practice or whatever you desire, but then you can also go and specialize. So very similar to human medicine, you can go and do an internship and then move on and do a four-year residency where you specialize in whether it's large animal surgery, large animal internal medicine, um, um, small animal cardiology, oncology, radiology. Wow et cetera, et cetera. I think that like a lot of the specialties that, that are in human medicine are also in veterinary medicine. They're just not as, as sought out. Right. And while you're in med school, I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, stories about how that was for you, right? Like, or in, in veterinary school, yeah. um, how, how did you get exposed to like that variety? How kind of, how is like the, the structure of the program and, and enabling you to, to experience all of that? So it's definitely overwhelming, that's for sure, because you're trying to not only learn about 
once, well, not just one species anatomy, but all of them. Um, the way the program was laid out was in our first year, we learned about everything that was normal. So we had all of our physiologies, um, our anatomy, our behavioral classes. Um, I can't think of what else because it was a long time ago, but just right. everything that like is how an animal is supposed to be. Uh, and what we did was a lot of comparative anatomy. So we would learn about the reproductive system and then it would be like, this is the dog's reproductive system. Now, this is how a cow's is different. This is how a horse's is different. This is how a snake's is different. This is how a tarantula is different. Um, and then we could kind of compare and contrast that way. Then in second year, we learn about everything that can go wrong. So then we take all of our bacteriology, virology, parasitology, all of the ologies to learn about how everything can die. Um, and then in third year, you learn about how you can fix it. So then we take our actual medicine courses where we start learning about um, surgery, small animal internal medicine, large animal medicine, um, herd medicine. Uh, so it's 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 set up pretty, pretty well. And then in our fourth year, we actually do a full year rotation. So our school was a little bit different where we don't actually have a teaching hospital. So I went to the mm. university of Calgary, um, and this is a newer school. So when the program was set up, the, the community decided that they didn't want the, the competition of having a teaching hospital. So instead, the veterinarians were willing to take students out into their practices and teach them. Okay. So I spent my last year traveling around um, the province that I'm from or be similar to your guys' states. So traveling around there and spending two weeks to a month in different practices, getting a lot of really hands-on experience. And I think this is this is huge because a lot of times in teaching hospitals, you're seeing a lot of specialty cases. Mm -hmm. So the specialists are dealing with them and you're not always able to get your hands in there. Whereas being in um, general practices or special, even spe specialty practices in the community, they really allowed us to get our hands, hands dirty and, and really learn and experience what vet veterinary medicine really is. Right. And I'm interested in that comparative anatomy part about it. Like how, how similar are different animals like in, in essence? You know, there, there's a lot of similarities and then there's some major differences. Like um, I'm sure, for example, I think the easiest one to compare is that um, the gastrointestinal tract of species are vastly different. So, you know, dogs, cats, pigs are all monogastrics um, and they, they have just one single stomach, whereas mm -hmm. like cattle um, are not, they have a, a large stomach, but with four compartments and all those compartments do different things. Um, and then it's, and, and horses, they have a small stomach, but then they have a really huge hind gut fermentating chamber, um, which allows them to digest fiber. So there there's things in each different species that, um, yeah, that, that are, that are major differences. And then there's like some smaller ones, like which way a vessel runs on the heart and which way the vagus nerve runs around, um, things like it's, then there's some minor differences that aren't as big of a deal, but yeah, some of those, those major ones are the ones that really stick with you. Gotcha. And, and it must be tough to keep track of all that though, because you have to deal with so many. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, there's a, a lot that, unfortunately, because I haven't used it, I've lost, um, only being out for three years. It's amazing how much you forget when you're not using it all the time, but 
I, I just try to be continue to be really humble. And I actually get made fun of often in clinic when I pull out the textbook and I'm, I'm rereading things. But I mean, they're, they're like nicely making fun of me, but I always, I'd always just want to be like, Hey, well, I want to double check. I want to double check that this is what it is. I want to make sure that I'm right. Just because it's so easy when, when things are so similar to kind of get simple things mixed up. Right. I completely agree. And I mean, there's, there's no harm in, in double checking, of course. Exactly. That's what I think too. Awesome. So, I mean, when you, when you're going through training and things like that, I mean, I was, I was scrolling through your Instagram and, and, and watching the different procedures you have posted there. And, um, it's, it's really amazing. And I was, I was really enjoying all the different kind of cases that I was seeing. I kind of wrote down like a, a bunch of them. I saw, you know, you're doing dental extractions, castrations, um, you know, euthanasia, you removed kidney stones from, from dogs, dental, like you did so many different things. And um, what's something like, what, what, what's your kind of favorite procedure or favorite um, thing to see and favorite, I guess, favorite animal to, to yeah. care for? Uh, I really like dogs. I really like, um, in general, I really like dogs, but cows are pretty high up there too. Um, I, I really like the medical side of dogs because, because they're a pet, they're a family member. We're allowed to do a lot more with them. So being able to actually take them to surgery, do blood work on them, work things up, do x-rays, ultrasounds, scopes, all of these different things. It's, it feels more like real medicine for lack of better words. Um, I really, I'm really passionate about agriculture and cattle. That's where my background is in. And that's actually why I initially went to vet school. I wanted to be a cow vet. Um, but you know, paths change a little bit. Um, so I, I love working with producers. I love working with cattle. It's just a very different type of medicine because you're focused more on the herd rather than the individual. A lot of the time. Um, right. Yeah. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, it doesn't. And how exactly is that different for, for these cases? Like, you know, are they, you're going to them, right. To do, do the, do any kind of medical procedures. How, how is that? Like, how is it working with the producers working with um, the cattle there? Yeah. So um, most of the time we do go out to the farm. Sometimes we do get the cattle to come in. Um, depending on what is going on like usually if it's a cesarean section we want them to come in because we usually have a bit of a cleaner facility um, and and everything is there for us to go ahead with the surgery but often they can't if the cow's down um, the the big reasons why it's so different is because when we're working with food animals we have to focus more on the economics unfortunately right like you have to you have to recognize what what something's worth versus how much, how much you want to spend. So it's more focused on like preventing disease in the entire group rather than just maybe an individual animal. Um, so it's, it's, it's a different mentality to have versus the small animal medicine, because you're focusing on that animal and you're doing everything that you can for that single one. But um, and, and sometimes with the large animal medicine, we do do some individual cases, but a lot of the time, you know, it's just all I get to do is my physical exam. I don't get to run blood work or do a bunch of crazy stuff to try to work up a case because that cow is maybe only worth $1,500. And well, at the end of the day, we still have to, we have to recognize that it's a business. And I mean, obviously, including the farmer, myself, we would want to do everything that we can to save that animal, but we have to make sure that um, they can put food on their family's table too. 
Right. And I, I bet that could be frustrating, right? Because yeah. It's like a conflict Absolutely. of interest. Yeah. And it, it is really frustrating. Um, it's like with the background I have growing up on a, a beef farm, like a beef cattle operation, I, I understand the economics. Um, I also understand that, that, that regardless of whether or not the farmer's doing it, they do care about their animal. It's just that these are decisions that every business has to make. Um, and, and you did ask me to kind of think about the challenges of veterinary medicine. And I would say this is a huge one where you just want to do what's best for the animal, but sometimes your hands are tied, not only in, in um, food animal medicine or large animal medicine, but small animal medicine too, because people don't, ha don't necessarily have all of the money in the world to be able to do everything you want to be able to do for their pet and you really kind of have to pick and choose what's most important and and make your diagnostic and treatment decisions based on the money that they have and also um th the ability that they have to do that treatment right so kind of weighing different options and then kind of selecting what works most for that particular case yeah, exactly. So I think we've gone off on a little bit of a tangent away from the, the food animals, but, but just thinking about like small animal medicine, I don't know what, um, I don't know as much about the healthcare system in the United States, but in Canada, we have universal healthcare. So we, we don't really have to pay much for, um, to see a physician or to, to get a workup done. Um, that's, that's just covered. So it, it can be a, definitely a challenge in veterinary medicine when I compare it to human medicine, looking at when a pet comes in and they're, they're presenting for, you know, just lethargy um, in, in veterinary medicine, we call it anorexia, but you'd call it in human medicine inappetence. So not wanting to eat. I mean, I want to, I want to do x-rays. I want to do an ultrasound. I want to do blood work, but most of the time I don't get that. I get, I get one of those. So based on what the animal's doing, my history, my physical exam, I have to choose which one of those is most important, important and which one's going to give me the most information to rule in and rule out diseases and then hopefully be able to make a treatment decision from there. Goodness, that's a lot of pressure right there. Making <laughs> it definitely can be because you're, you know, you're dealing with someone's money. You're not only dealing with their pet, but all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, if I make the wrong choice now, now you're out a couple hundred dollars and, and I don't want to, I don't want to make you lose money, but it's also, it's important that we do this. Right. And it's, it's so tough to make those decisions too. I mean, mm -hmm. when you, when you started, um, you know, I talked to, to, uh, new residents all the time, right. Straight out of medical school. And then they're thrown in a residency and start practicing. And there's always like, those first cases where they're just, you know, they're not as accustomed to, you know, being a patient's, you know, primary doctor and, and things like that. And um, how, how was that for you in, in the initial stages of when you started working? Yeah, there's a, a big, a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, uh, I don't, I'm sure you've heard that term before, but you <laughs> all of a sudden, like, literally, it's like one day you're a student, the next day you're a vet and, and you're allowed to make these decisions. And, and you feel like you're a fraud. You're like, I don't know why someone is trusting me to say these things, but I think you start to get over that. I think you really have to give yourself a lot of self-love and um, be really mindful of how hard you are, are on yourself. Um, it definitely was really hard in the beginning. And even now there's still moments where I'm like, what, why is this person 
like, why are they trusting me? But, but what you have to remember is you have seven, eight, nine, 10 years more schooling in this particular field, more than what they have. Like, I think that, um, if anything, I, I, I've become more confident, but one other thing that this has taught me is just to really trust other industry professionals because they are, they're just doing their best. So instead of, you know, questioning them all the time, I'm like, okay, I trust you because you are trained in this field. So yeah, it, it, um, the imposter syndrome never really goes away. It just keeps getting a little bit less and less. Um, and, and there's certain things that start getting a little less crazy too. Like you're not constantly having to look up drug doses in the book all the time. You're not having to always like reread certain surgeries or look up, um, differentials for certain things. Like you kind of start to just, there's, there's a few things that become more routine, which is nice. Uh, and then you can really focus on the things that are different and those other things that you need to learn on. So it does start to get easier, but, uh, I think that every once in a while, you know, you still have that little bit of imposter syndrome that sneaks up to keep you a little bit more humble. Right. And one particular aspect of that is, you know, especially with, um, treating a lot of people's, you know, their, their, their pet who's been with them for years on years, their best friend, kind of someone that's been there for a long time. It, it must be tough, you know, when they're bringing in their animal um, for anything other than like a routine checkup, it's like, they're scared. I would, I would, I would bet. I mean, how, how is it dealing with owners? Because I feel like you have to have such a level of, of empathy and, um, caring, you know, not only for the animal, but, but for the, the, the pet, um, the pet owner too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think a lot of people go into veterinary medicine because they, they love animals and they don't want to work with people. And, and then, and then you realize that you actually work more with people than you do with animals. Uh, I feel like a lot of time I'm talking about what's going on in people's lives, um, how they're feeling, how they're coping with situations. Uh, honestly, I feel like I'm a, a guidance counselor or a, um, a psychologist sometimes going through things with people. And it, it is difficult because we are trained in it a little bit, but we're not trained in it enough. Um, just being able to communicate with people about yeah what's going on, how they're feeling, but it has gotten easier as, as time has gone on. I mean, you kind of learn what, what works to say, what doesn't work to say, you kind of start to understand different clients' personalities and, and, um, how you can say things, things depending on, on that person. Um, when it comes to quality of life discussions or end of life discussions, I, I try to really look at them as a treatment option not as a, a means of the end. Um, Cause a lot of the time we're doing euthanasias because that pet is suffering. So I have these conversations with people and I, and I really try to not be judgmental. And I, and I, and I say that to them that I'm just here to give them the options and, and they should never feel judged. And, and often people want to know my opinion on the situation. And I, and I just say like my relationship with my pet is very different than yours. And, and unfortunately, like, I can't make this decision for you, but I'll be here for, for whatever you, whatever decision you decide to make. 
Um, one of the things I often discuss with people when we're, when we're having these discussions is I tell them to pick three things right. that their pet loves. And if at some point their pet can't do two of these three things, then, then it might be time to consider um, end of life. I think that in the veterinary field, we're really lucky that we have this option especially um, because we're, we're able to alleviate pets of suffering. Um, because unfortunately, as much as we all would love our pets to just die in their sleep, that's not always the case, right? Um, and I, I'm sure in, in human medicine too, you know, you hear people just talk about, okay, well, you know, it's just old age, it's just old age. Right. Well, yes, things old age is a thing but um, it's usually because things are starting to go wrong so whether like organs are starting to fail or you know cognitive function is starting to go um, it's it's old age is I feel like sometimes people use it as an excuse to be like well they're just getting old and it's yeah. like well, well, yes but that means that there's there's things that aren't functioning properly and yeah. if we don't want to deal with those things then is it fair for them to not be able to go outside anymore to use the bathroom, only be able to eat like oatmeal off of the peanut butter spoon yeah. or whatever, so that, right? Like it's- That's such a big ethical question though, because, you know, euthanasia in, in veterinary medicine is, is extremely common. And then mm -hmm. when you when you talk about the same thing um, in human medicine, it's kind of like a, a little bit of a taboo topic. And there's this um, there's this book that um, this, this one- uh, reporter I was re researching um, wrote and it was basically about physician assisted suicide and, mm -hmm. and that was that was a topic and I found it really interesting because there are people that have gotten the point in their life because of medical conditions that they genuinely don't enjoy living and by you know having this kind of procedure perform you know physician assisted suicide it's like you said a treatment rather than a means of end it's it's what's in the best thought like they've lived you know a good life and and that's the memory that they want to have not you know spending years on years kind of on on death's bed but then at the same time it's like there are some people that I guess are like mentally impaired and then it's like do they are they in the mental state to make that decision and I don't know it's just a tough decision it honestly I feel like we could we could talk about it all day it is it is such a a tough thing to talk about ethically especially when it's coming to humans and and we've actually as veterinarians been invited to talks in Canada mm. about um, assisted suicide, because I'm not sure if it's just in Alberta or if it's all of Canada, but there we, we are able to have like um, proceed with assisted suicide here, depending on the case, they have to have um, a, like a life ending disease. So something that they're never going to recover from and they have to be mentally sound. Uh, and then I think they have to have a couple different doctors sign off on it too. So it's quite a complicated process, but I think that, I mean, and this is going to be my opinion and, and I, I mean, people can judge me if they want to, but I think that it's a move, a movement in the right direction. Granted though, that's because my focus in veterinary medicine is quality of life, not survivability. Whereas I think that in human medicine, it's, it's a lot more focused on, you know, you want your patient to, to survive. You want them to have a good life, but it's, it's more important that they survive a lot of the time over making sure that they're having the best possible life that they can. 
especially when it comes into the hands of family members, right? Like there's always that little sliver of hope that things will get better. And yeah. it's, it, it's, it's, it's inevitable. I guess it's like human nature to think about it like that. Um, and in terms of um, veterinary medicine, seeing um, people bring in their, their, their pets, do you see that, you know, people that like holding on to like some sliver of hope that maybe my pet will become better. Maybe we, things can go back to how they used to be. How is, how is that experience? Yeah, I would definitely hundred percent see that all the time. Um, typically like if it's, if it's a pet coming in that has a specific disease that makes it a little bit easier because then we can actually talk about prognosis. We can talk about, um, things that, that change the prognosis too. So if like certain clinical signs are showing up or, um, there's a, a change in certain clinical signs too, then we have a better idea about how the, the patient is responding to treatment. And then maybe there is that hope that things are going to get better. But uh, if that's not happening, just being really realistic with the client and being like, you know, this is the information. All I can do is give you this information. Like things are not getting better. I'm not hopeful, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if it's a, a, an older dog, for example, coming in and, you know, the person's like, you know, they have some good days still. Um, they're not all bad. Like there'll be like three or four bad days and then we'll have one really good day. And, and then I usually have, again, a conversation with them that like, is it, is that fair when, you know, four out of five days, that's 80% of their life. They're, they're not good. And there's 20% that they're okay. Is that fair? And, and, and if someone is like, you know, no, I just, as long as we can keep them comfortable, I'm fine with this. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I've given you the options. We've talked about it. It's ultimately your decision. And, and, and I mean, to me personally, if, if my dog was 80% not herself and 20% herself, then I think that I would be thinking that maybe the best, the best option for her would be end of life. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. I mean, it, you you have that clear focus that, you know, it's about quality of life. And that makes a lot of sense because at the end of the day, you can't, you know, ask the, ask, you know, the animal what, um, what they would prefer, but it's, it, it, you can tell, right. You can tell sometimes. And, and I guess in the beginning, people won't be that ready to accept it, but with time, you know, it just, you realize how kind of selfish you might be being by not providing that treatment for, you know, your pet. Yeah. And, and I, and I shouldn't say that the, I mean, youth, and maybe it sounds like euthanasia is the only option, <laughs> but it, it's, it's not like if a, if a client wants to do everything, I will go to the ends of the earth to try to do what I can, but it does come to a point where, I mean, we're not as, as um, medical professionals, we're not magicians, unfortunately, like there's still only so many things we can do. There's still only so many answers that we can get. And, and we can't always get the complete full picture. I mean, the, the body doesn't always read the textbook. They don't, it doesn't read how a disease is supposed to present and present that way and act that way. Um, and I mean, a lot of the textbook doesn't tell you when two diseases are happening at once, what's going to happen. So it's, it's tough. Um, and I, and, and I will like send things to specialists and things away, do as much as I can. But a lot of the time, I mean, it gets to a point where we can't do anymore. Right. And Dr. Carling, I know, um, you know, we love telling stories on the podcast about, you know, your, your experiences in, in your practice. Do you have any stories from 
your career that you hold dear to yourself or stories that you love love telling in general hmm. I mean I have my my list of horror stories that always <laughs> stick with me but maybe I'll start on like a more positive note sure. um yeah there's some some really amazing cases that I've been able to work up and work with like um you know, the ones that don't always go exactly how you think they're going to go, but the, the client is so appreciative of what you've done for their pet. Um, like trying to think, oh, well, I guess one, one that sticks with me, and this is less client and more just medical focused was I, I also work at an emergency practice in um, a, a small city, I guess an hour and a half away from me now, but it was half an hour away before. And I was still pretty much a new grad and I was working by myself. It was 2 a.m. And this dog came in with a twisted stomach. And I, I mean, I'd learned about them in school. Uh, they're called uh, gastric dilation volvulus. So essentially the stomach just twists. It fills up with air um, and fluid. And then because of that, it causes uh, lack of blood flow and then starts causing necrosis and tissue death of the stomach, which then has a lot of other consequences on the rest of the body. So this dog came in and I had seen the surgery before, but I'd never actually done the surgery. And at that point it was two in the morning. A lot of my mentors actually, I had like, one was in Australia. The other one was like in Europe. Um, it was, there was someone else that was gone to, it was like, I, I just had no one to call. And it was two in the morning. I was like, I don't know what I'm yeah. going to do. So to the client, I was like, okay, well, this is an emergency surgery. Either I can do it or I can send it, like we can send it to a specialist, but it, but the dog might not make it. And the guy was just like, no, you try it, do it. So I was like, okay. So the, the dog was actually um, had a, from the buildup of toxins from the, the twist and it had pretty bad arrhythmia. So I was trying to like control the arrhythmia. The dog was like flat out. We're trying to go to surgery. So I'm trying to find like um, a, a good pre-med mix for like this particular situation. We intubate, we go to surgery. I get in there. It actually was like a pretty easy fix. Like you just kind of flip oh. the stomach, release or release the gas. Um, and then you tack the stomach to the body wall with sutures, close it up. The dog, yeah, the dog did okay. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I was like, I was like reading the textbook right before. Yeah. That, that is definitely one of those situations where I was just like, I was so out of my comfort zone, but sometimes those things happen and you just have to like do what you can, because if I would have referred that dog somewhere else, there was a huge possibility that it might've died on the way. Um, right. So I, mean, I can imagine like at the yeah. end of that, you must've been like, you know, that imposter syndrome you were talking about earlier, it would have been like, you know, that I, I can't, I can't bother you with that. Yeah. I definitely was like, Oh my goodness, this is, why is this person trusting me? But it all, <laughs> it all went good. And, and the thing is, especially when it comes to surgery, like I knew my surgery skills were good. I've seen mm -hmm. the surgery several times before. I just never done it by myself. So, um, that was definitely one of those cases that stuck with me a lot. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's some other ones I had this, this is more of like a traumatizing story, but like not sure. terribly traumatizing. Um, I was working, I, it was after hours and I was by myself again, but I had this horse come in that had severe, severe diarrhea and was colicking. So it had like 
bad abdominal pain, which mm-hmm. colic can mean a multitude of things. It can um, be caused by a ton of different things. So I needed to see the horse to try to kind of figure out what was going on. As I was doing my physical exam, the horse actually like dropped in the, the chute that we had it in or the stocks and started seizing and died like within oh. 10 minutes of me. Yeah. Like, and the owner's just standing there freaking out. And I'm just like, I don't you know didn't even do anything. Yeah. I was like, I didn't even do anything. Yep. Yeah. So that, um, that was a little bit traumatizing, but the, the horse we did, um, an autopsy on the horse after, and it had a pretty bad, what we suspect was like a clostridial diarrhea. And then it went septic and, and just, oh. it was kind of too late by the time I saw it, it probably like through a clot or something, or maybe it's electrolytes were so off by that point that it dropped and seized and died. Yeah. It, uh, Dang. I'm trying to think of, I get to see puppies a lot of the time. That's Oh positive. yeah. Tell me yeah, follow a puppy story. I think, I think we need a puppy story after that. Um, I mean, I feel like most of the hard part is, is the, the memorable stories are the traumatic ones. Those are the ones yeah. that I remember the most, but I mean, I get to see litters of puppies all the time. They're great. Like I get to hang out with eight puppies in a room and, uh, chat, do physical exams on all of them and just chat with people and, I see some pretty cool dog mixes. Um, There's, I mean, some, I work with, or I, I still kind of work with with the rescue, but um, there's been some really, really satisfying puppy cases where we've, we have a a disease that puppies can get called parvovirus and it essentially just destroys their entire intestine. So they get pretty severe diarrhea, but like cases of these little tiny, tiny puppies coming in and they, we, we IV fluids, medication, place feeding tubes, like do everything for them. And then all of a sudden they bounce back and are happy and go home. And I mean, there's a lot of really good stories like that too. Yeah. That, that's just awesome. Um, I love, I love that. I, lo- I love all these stories. These are even the traumatizing one. Like <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> it's cool to get a nice, like, you know, variety of everything that you're seeing. Um, but you know, it's clear, it's so clear that you're like, you're extremely passionate about all this. And, and I, I find that amazing. I absolutely love it. And um, I know you're doing, you know, on top of your veterinary stuff, you're doing um, things with uh, what was it called Woofly, like with the, uh, the dog food. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it's um, a homemade dog food company. That's actually in, in a, a city around here too, a different city, but yeah, I started working with them. Um, I really believed in the product that they're producing. Uh, a lot of people really like feeding raw food, which has kind of um, some issues with it that I, I don't particularly love. So I was really happy to find a company that worked with a veterinary nutritionist to develop a cooked um, whole food diet as an, uh, as an alternative option to some of these raw food diets that people want to feed. Um, so I've been working with them, I think for about a year, they're still a, a pretty big startup company. So they're trying to, to branch out in, in a little bit further of an area, but so far just kind of in the Western side of Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that there's a couple different companies in the United States that do similar things too. I think one of them is called Nom Nom. And um, that's kind of what this, this company is um, based off of, like they're kind of reflecting that right. one. 
there was someone that, that submitted a question actually asking about um, this and that's, that's why I brought it up, but they're oh, okay. asking about the difference between, so it, it was with cats actually, but um, she has a cat and she was wondering canned food versus raw food. And, and you kind of touched on raw food. It's just like, I, I would be interested to hear like what exactly about raw food is a little, um, you know, questionable that you, that you were saying. Yeah. So I guess it, to answer her question first, so canned food versus raw food. I mean, um, you're kind of, I wouldn't say there's a huge, huge difference. So there's just a, a higher safety profile for canned food, both raw food and um, canned food are both going to have quite a high moisture content, which is really good for cats because we want that moisture um, because it's really good for kidney health. Um, it's good for gastrointestinal health. Um, just getting more water in them into them is good for, for kidney function. Now, some of my issues with raw food is, I don't know how regulated things are in the States, but here in Canada, you can, there's not a lot of regulations on pet food. So a lot of the raw food companies are just people kind of selling raw food out their back door. Um, mm. I shouldn't say a lot of them, some of them, not all. There are some more reputable ones. Um, so my, one of my big concerns is just it's not, might not be a balanced diet. Um, if, if she's thinking about raw food versus the canned food, she just needs to ask, her raw food provider about um, the crude analysis show that it matches um, the standards that that it needs to be sufficient to feed a cat right. um, make make sure that it has the right vitamins and minerals and all those things um, then the if she's looking at the canned food what she can look for is to make sure that it has afco certification so that's aafco um, mm -hmm. and that's the american association of something, 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 but it, it essentially says that, Hey, we meet all these standards to feed your pet. Um, now my other issue with raw food is, is pets are a lot hardier than we are, but that raw food still contains a lot of pathogens that can make us sick as well as them. So it has your E. coli, your Campylobacter, your Salmonella, your Listeria, um, et cetera, et cetera. So if we're feeding that your pet, there's a chance they might get sick. I do see pets come in with like bloody severe diarrhea, vomiting from eating raw food. Um, not, it's not probably as often as if we were eating raw food, but right. it does happen. Now, the big concern is that they carry those bacteria that's in that food in their saliva and their feces. So if your pet is licking your face, if they oh, are licking, yeah, licking things in the environment, um, especially for people who are immunocompromised. So children, elderly, and people who have immunocompromised diseases, you worry about them getting those. There was a study, I think it was in Ontario where a cat, this, this household of cats was fed raw food. And two of the kids actually, I think got salmonella and they isolated that salmonella back to the raw food diet. Um, so it's just, is it worth the risk of, I mean, there's, there's a small risk, but that chance is still there. Um, the other thing too, which is more recent research is the, the antibiotic resistance that it could cause. So feeding them raw food, those bacteria in the gut are interacting with each other and they can actually trade certain um, pathogenicity genes. So there is, there is, has been some research shown that a salmonella will go from that's in the food will go in through the dog's gastrointestinal tract, and then it'll come out with certain resistant factors because it's it's traded these with other bacteria yeah. inside the gut. 
So that's a concern too, especially when we're trying to be really prudent about, um, or really like have good antimicrobial stewardship and be really cautious about these things. Um, so those, are, yeah. yeah, those are my concerns with it, but this is what I tell people because some people really like it and I never want to be judgmental with what people decide. So if you're going to feed a raw food diet, make sure that it's balanced. So talk to the provider, make sure that they can actually provide statistics and numbers on, on that particular diet. Make sure that you clean the bowls all the time, um, wash them every single time you feed the dog. Try not to let that dog lick your face. Make sure you wash your hands after cleaning up feces. And then finally, there's nothing wrong with cooking the food. Just cook it yeah. before you feed it. And then that takes away a lot of the risks and, and you still get that whole food diet. Awesome. Well, that's, that's a lot of information right there. A I lot. like, again, yeah. I don't, I don't have any pets, but I do want to have a pet in the future, you know, once I, <laughs> I can have my own place, but definitely will keep all of that in mind for the future. Yeah, um, no, it's a, it's a conversation I have a lot with people because people are quite interested in it. So, right. And, you know, before, before I let you go, I just want to ask you one more question about um, your, your platform and with, with this idea of transparency that, that you talk about a lot in, in, veterinary medicine. Um, I, I know you um, recently decided to, to switch um, and start working in, in, in the city for another um, mixed animal vet, uh, vet clinic. And I think I was reading one of your posts and you were talking about how transparency is one of your biggest values and you're able to kind of explore that um, with this new clinic. And so I'm just, you know, curious about to your future of what you want to do uh with this and you know overall um how transparency plays a role into that yeah so the the transparency part actually all started out because of the agriculture industry so moving from a small town and a farm to the city i recognized how much um, people removed from agriculture didn't know um, so it started by just trying to get information about the out there about the agriculture industry and my feeling is is that we shouldn't need to hide things if people understand why we need to do things a certain way. So it's, it's not about that, that, that um, the industries are being deceptive or trying to, to do things. They're just like, well, people don't understand. So they won't, they right. won't understand why they, they might do take this. it the wrong way. Yeah. Exa exactly. So, so that it started out there and then it, and then it kind of moved into once I was a vet, I realized, Hey, this, this industry is really similar. People, don't necessarily understand why we do things a certain way or what we do. And because of that, it looks like we're hiding things. And, and, and I don't want to, I don't think that anything we're doing is wrong. So I, I don't want to hide things. I want to make them understand. Um, this, the new clinic that I'm, and, and that's, sorry, that's why I started like the blog and, and started on Instagram because I was like, I, like, this is a really cool world. Yeah. Even my friends had no idea what I did. Exactly. In like I didn't, so, I didn't, I don't have like a career plan to go into veterinary medicine, but I found this stuff fascinating when I was going <laughs> through it. You know, I was just like, this, this is really cool. I didn't know any, anything about this and yeah. seeing it is really cool. It is. It is really a fascinating industry. And I've, I've heard that comment from actually a lot of people who have said, I don't, I don't even have a dog. I, I don't have cows. I don't have anything. And I have no interest in your field, but they were like, it's just so fascinating the things yeah. that you do. So then I wanted to continue sharing it. And and now I've found a clinic that really aligns with my, um, 
my values. So the clinic that I'm going to work for is uh, owned by Dr. Cody Creelman. He's quite um, big on social media as well. Um, and, and, and he's quite transparent with things. He was a cow vet before. And so he would show a lot of stuff about the agriculture industry and was just really real about it. Um, now this new clinic, the, the really cool thing is we actually have a huge transparent window into the treatment room. So people can oh. see everything that's going on in the back. Um, and hopefully we can continue to just educate people why we have to do things a certain way and not just seem like, you know, I think, uh, clients get scared when they hear the vet say, I'm just going to take your dog to the back. Like it's, it's a scary yeah. thing that we're trying to hide what we're doing, but we're not. It's just because, you know, there's other people back there that can help us hold our, all our tools are back there. So it's, it makes things a little bit easier. So yeah, the transparency thing is, I just think that in, in a lot of industries, we need to be more open about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think that um, this clinic will really be good to, to allow me to continue to share not only the veterinary world, but the agriculture world as well. Yeah, I, I really like what you said about the transparency part, you know, like the, the, the idea of hiding things, um, because people will take them the wrong way. And instead of, you know, it, it seems like sometimes we hide things because we are, or we don't have the time to explain things, or we don't have the, the manpower to go out there and explain things and, and deal with like the, the concern. And so we just keep it kind of hidden. So we don't have to deal with it. But I, I really like what you're saying with that, you know, you should just show it. And if questions are asked, you know, you're not doing it in any like malicious intent. You're doing it completely for, you know, the client, for the animal and showing that I think is super powerful. Yeah, I think so too. I think that um, it really bridges that trust. Um, and, and in, I mean, the medical world and in the veterinary world, you talk about building rapport with that client and building that relationship. And I think that by allowing them to fully see what you're doing, you're building that because they are going to understand. And there's, and there's some people that aren't going to like it, but no matter what you do, people aren't going to like certain people aren't going to like it. So it's just, it's just going to be different. And I think that it's a good thing. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I just want to say this last part Um, with social media too, right. It's becoming so easy to like, to have such a diverse understanding of the world I think if you know what I mean and like that transparency you're talking about like now through through you know the future and and things that you're going to do you know people like myself people that aren't in veterinary medicine don't even have pets like you said will be able to learn about how these things are done just out of genuine curiosity and I feel like that in and of itself is like is, is good right you know having that knowledge out there and having it accessible to anyone without a background I mean I feel like we're seeing it in veterinary medicine and all kinds of fields as you know social media is kind of getting pushed more I agree I completely completely agree and I think that um you know the people who want to say bad things about whether it's agriculture veterinary medicine human medicine nutrition those those people might be the ones that have a little bit extra time on their hands to blow up social media and 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 say the negative things so that stuff gets out so so as 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 different professions, we, we need to stand up and we need to get our voice heard so that it doesn't get drowned out by the people who might have um, more shock value things to try to throw out. So if we can get the information out there, then maybe we can drown out the, the misinformation. 
completely agree. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Carling. Uh, this yeah, is, this is a lot of fun. I really learned a lot and, you know, hope the listeners do too. But again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and thank you so much for listening. If you love Mitspectives, be sure to follow us on Spotify, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this podcast with your friends. It really helps us grow and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next Monday. Thank you.